Welcome to the Aerospace Executive Podcast, featuring in-depth conversations with executives, leaders, influencers, and journalists in this dynamic, high-stakes industry. Hosted by Craig Pickett, founder of Northstar Group, the boutique executive search firm for the aerospace industry. You'll learn how top aerospace executives are developing their people, competing for talent, overcoming challenges, and adjusting to industry trends to drive growth and profits. And now, let's join your host, Craig Pickett. Welcome to the Aerospace Executive Podcast. I'm Craig Pickett. Hey, today I am thrilled to be here with Dr. Laura Gallagher. Laura is the president of Gallagher Edge, and her focus is in organizational psychology. She helps CEOs, business leaders, and companies, including NASA and some other well-known venture capitalist-backed tech companies, uh, develop their teams, create their cultures, and just get better in general. Uh, Laura is currently uh, about nine months into a world tour where she's conducting business from Asia, South America, currently in Belgrade, Serbia, and just thrilled to have her on board. Well, hey, thanks for uh, thanks for coming on today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Craig. So you've got a PhD in organizational development, and you've worked with some great organizations like NASA. And tell us about your typical, what's a typical company or client you'll work with? Yeah, um, well, actually, so I studied organizational psychology, um, which I think is really neat. And people can pick all kinds of weird and different directions to go with that kind of degree. But I was always really interested in applying it. Um, So some people stay in the research field, they go into academia, but I wanted to take all these things that we know about humans in the workplace and actually help humans be better, feel better, do better at work. So yeah, as you said, I I started out working with NASA and I spent a lot of my career there working with the technology group, um, the technology folks and the engineering folks. And so when I started my own company, Gallagher Edge, in 2013, that was my original niche. Is I, I said, I want to work with technology companies. And so I got connected with a few of them in the Orlando area. But then I kind of naturally pinballed into just working with any companies that were growing. So um, like one of the maybe most different or unusual clients that I got fairly early on was a golf car distribution company. So it's like a dealership, but for golf cars. And yeah, it's, they say cars, not carts which, you know, threw me in the beginning. (laughs) But for me, it's like any organization that has a CEO and an executive team who genuinely care about culture and are really just looking for help. I think most of my clients understand that it matters. They just need help. There's just so much that about human behavior that's, that's complicated. And then they themselves are getting in the way without realizing how. So they bring me in to help them figure it out. So, you know, you see Companies with really good cultures. I mean, you think about like, you know, everybody talks about Zappos, you know, now now part of Amazon, you know, and it was kind of a wild culture with a lot of collaborative behavior. And then, um, you know, hey, we, we can look at the clown show that's happening in the White House now with Omarosa in her new book, completely different culture. What, what sets the tone of a culture? I mean, how, how do cultures come into existence and how do they change? So culture is going to be different in every organization. I think the biggest thing that I push for is I want executives to be intentional about it. So one of the things that makes me laugh the most is when people say like, well, we don't really have a culture here. (laughs) And I think what they mean when they say that is that there's not a 
clear, cohesive culture that um, maybe leadership has not set any kind of intention about this is how we want things to be done here. These are the behaviors and the things that we reinforce. These are the behaviors that we ourselves model. These are the things that are not okay with us. When those things aren't clear, people often think, oh, we don't have culture here. But there's always culture. Culture is just how things are done. And so if executives are not intentional about it, then it could be really fragmented where you have subcultures popping up depending on the different beliefs of leaders in various parts of the organization, um, or it can be a complete disaster. Um, I, I've, I don't think I've ever seen a culture emerge as awesome without intention. How do you how do you and how do you how do you create an intentional culture? Is that is that the is that is that CEO driven or is it is it is it top down bottom up? Is is it everybody coming together and creating a mission statement? Yeah. So for me, it's absolutely top down. Not to say that you know grassroots efforts don't matter or can't have an impact. Um, I, my hope is that employees in all organizations feel empowered to speak up and that they feel like they are a part of creating that culture too. But the reality is there are power dynamics and power structures that exist within organizations. And so people will pay the most attention to not only the behavior of the leaders, but also what behaviors are rewarded or reinforced, whether that's implicit or explicit. So one of the first things that I do, as simple as it sounds, is I have CEOs write down what they want their culture to be. And if they feel really confused by that question, then I say, okay, just imagine that you're walking into work. What happens? Like describe an ideal day. Um, You know, asking leaders to describe meetings is a really, really great way to tap into what culture is and what they want it to be. So a lot of leaders might say, you know, our meetings sometimes get tense and other times they're just super boring. I present ideas and uh, this is actually a real line I got from one of my CEOs really made me laugh. He said, yeah, I presented the ideas. And I said, oh, great. What feedback did you get? He goes, blinks mostly. (laughs) I was like, oh no. You know, so people just like not speaking up. Um, So I I work with CEOs to just help them get clear about what is it that's happening now and what is it that you want to have happen instead. So most of them say things like, well, you know, I want to hear what they think. I want to know if they think that this direction that we're going or this project that I'm proposing is going to be a complete disaster. I don't want them to smile and nod in the meeting and then go out to the water cooler in the hallway and shake their head no, like it's never going to work. I want them to be open. I want them to be honest. I want there to be debate. If somebody doesn't like what I'm saying as a leader, I want them to challenge me. I want them to feel like that's okay. Now, I'm saying that the way that I would say it. They probably say things like, what's wrong with them? Why don't they just say something? Um, And so it's really about like, what are the human behaviors? What are the dynamics? What's normal? And what do CEOs want it to look like instead? So So even just writing that down is a great place to start. Yeah. So, hey, look, if so I I take it, you know, you, you, you look at an organization and you've got a CEO and sometimes it can be really lonely at the top. You know, the, the CEO or the, the company president or the division vice president or sales leader, you know, they are where they are for a reason. And sometimes they're expected or they have this self-expectation that they're supposed to know all the answers. Oh, yes. How do you ch- you know, here's a guy, he's way up there and he's like, oh, you know, how do you take the pressure off him or her to mm-hmm. say, look, you really don't have to know the answers. What you have to do is 
you know, be able to drive decisions and conclusions. Right. I think one of the big things that I, I help them do is redefine what it means to be competent. So I feel like most of us, I mean, starting from when we're kids, competence is what do you know? Literally, like, do you know what letter this is? <laughs> you know, how do you pronounce this? Can you read this word? So it's very, very knowledge-based. And we focus so much on teaching people knowledge sets, which are obviously critical to get things done. But as we talk about leadership, the skills and the knowledge sets that become really important shift dramatically. And so um, we tend to think of competence as what I know, what I have learned, what I have specifically been through, what I have done before. And that's where I think that idea gets really overwhelming for CEOs, especially any CEO that's growing their organization, which, you know, if you're not growing, then you're standing still and you're probably dying a slow death. So pretty much every organization's growing it becomes less about what do you know and more about what is your capacity for growth and development, right? What is your resilience? What is your capacity for learning? What is your capacity for adaptation? And most importantly, how effective are you at getting everybody else that works with you to figure these things out, right? And it becomes really about we co-create instead of it being all on the leader all the time because that's exhausting and it's not sustainable. Is, is it okay for a leader? I mean, I remember sitting in a meeting, you know, CEO of a company and six or seven people around a boardroom. And the CEO, get, one guy kept peppering the CEO with, with questions. And finally, the guy comes back to him and says, look, I don't know the answers. Why don't you figure it out and come and tell me what the best course of action is? How do we teach leaders to come to challenge their people to say, look, come to me with solutions, not questions? Well, I like the idea of co-creation, right? So in that example, it sounds like there was at least a little bit of defensiveness from the CEO. And it doesn't mean that the CEO is wrong. I'm not a big believer in right and wrong anyway. In fact, I had air quotes on that, which I know your listeners can't see. Um, But this idea of, you know what, we are in this together. I want to figure this out together. And as crazy as it sounds, sometimes even leaders underneath the leader at the top, they're really just looking for permission to say, yeah, I, I, that's exactly what I would love for you to go figure out for me, but not in a way that's dismissive or that's just up to you in a way that's like, hey, this is what I would like for you to bring to me. How can I support you while you're doing this? Um. Do you find that, you know, does, are, are people willing to do that? Are most leaders really in business, are they willing to open themselves up to that? Let's figure this out together. Or do they want to put that coat of armor on and say, this is going to, you know, how it's going to be done. Damn it. You know. Oh man. I mean, so, so yeah, I think, and it's not even just leaders, right? It's most humans. Um, but yeah, that, that coat of armor or that defensiveness is there for just about all of us. And that's one of the biggest things that I actually work on with leaders when I'm working with them as a coach is because in some ways they can look at behavior like that and say, okay, yeah, sure. Co-creation. Let's figure this out together. They kind of know, part of them knows logically that that makes sense, but then they still don't do it. And so part of what I do is I, I dive pretty deep with them to figure out like, what is scary to you about that? I help them uncover all the stories in their minds, right? So a lot of them have grown up with, and these stories might be subconscious, but they've grown up with the story that if you're smart, you know everything. Or a real leader is, you know, very like commanding. 
And um, a real leader isn't vulnerable. A real leader doesn't, um, or maybe it's not even a leader, maybe it's a man, right? This is what a real man does. Doesn't admit that they don't know something or they don't put that on somebody else. And so I just try to uncover a lot of those stories because they're just, you know, they're bullcrap basically. So once we can uncover those stories and rewrite the script, then it's a matter of practicing a new behavior. And they get to notice what feels really uncomfortable about it because it triggers some kind of insecurity. But again, most of that, it's just artificial. So it's just like peeling back the layers of an onion to help them figure out what's really true, all the while helping them, believe it or not, feel better about who they are so that those things become a lot less scary. So, I mean, so you're, I mean, obviously you got your, you got your doctorate in organizational psychology and you wrote, I read one of your blogs and it was really good. You know, our behavior is directly connected with how we feel about ourselves. And, mm-hmm. you know, I take, you know, I take it, you know, if, 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 if you've got people in an organization that are a little bit down on themselves, how do you get them to break out of the shell? But on the flip side, you've got people that are way over their skis. <laughs> um, how, do you, how do you reel them in? Um, right. yeah. yeah, I think you're spot on with your, I think you're spot on with what you wrote there. Well, thanks. And the funny thing is, I, I think that um, those are two sides of the same coin, right? The um, the person that, that is very sort of noticeably insecure, does not feel good about who they are. And then the person who is just sort of, you know, comes off with this overinflated ego, very arrogant. Both of those are actually signs of deep fundamental insecurity. So there's a lot of things that we do to help somebody feel better about themselves. Um, One of my favorites is something that any of your listeners can choose to start doing immediately, which is a practice um, of taking credit. Taking credit. And okay, so if you're a leader listening to this, probably your gut reaction was, wait, 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 I thought the good leaders didn't take credit. I thought the good leaders gave credit away and, you know, said, oh, no, it was the team. It was the team. Okay, cool. I hear that. So let me explain what I mean. We are really, really hard on ourselves as human beings, almost all of us, whether it's conscious or subconscious. And we're also taught again and again, um, things like don't brag, be humble, don't talk about yourselves, um, find ways to be better. And so it's really, really easy for all of us to, no matter where we are in life, look at our own situation, look at ourselves and go, not good enough not good enough. And so to start to change the pattern and start to say, okay, you know what? I'm going to start to take credit for the ways that I'm improving. I'm going to take credit for the things that are hard for me to do. It becomes a little bit like this bank account where we get to store up (laughs) for resilience so that when things are really hard, we're not just beating up on ourselves now with a baseball bat, whereas before it was you know, something smaller like a wooden spoon, right? It's like, you know what? Yeah, shoot, I screwed this up. This is a mistake. Um, but I know that I've also done all of these things along the way and I'm growing and I'm working on it and I'm improving. So here's an example of taking credit, like a real one that I love to use. Let's say I've never run a day in my life. And I say, you know what? I want to be able to run a 5K. So it's about, what, 3.2 miles. And so I go out and my first attempt to run, I only make it a mile and I feel like I'm dying. Maybe I don't even quite make it a mile. I don't know. And I sort of limp back into my home, climb in the shower. So I have, there's more than two options, but let's just say two options at this point. 
I can go, this sucks. I suck. I'm terrible. I wanted to run 3.2 miles. I couldn't even run one. What's wrong with me? Or I can say, you know what? I ran a mile today and that's a mile more than I ran yesterday. And that was not easy for me. And I'm tired and I'm probably going to be sore tomorrow, but I did it. So I can either focus on my growth and my improvement, or I can focus on the gap between where I am and where I want to be. And so my question for leaders, if they're really honest with themselves, is which one of these scenarios is going to be more likely to motivate me to continue in that direction? Are they willing to look at it that way? I mean, are they willing to say, hey, look, you know, you're, you know, you know we, did, we did a point better today. Are you willing to, you can, can leaders be really trained to look at their teams and say, hey, we did a little bit better yesterday. We're still not where we want to be, but we're, but we're improving. And, and I mean, yeah. You've seen the the, the, the the defeatist out there. Mm-hmm. We we didn't make it today. Do I need to bring on new? Do I need to bring on a new team so that we make it? Oh, oh the worst. You, you've all, we've all seen it. Yeah, yeah. So you know, in a, in a lot of cases, yes. And I will say that the the CEOs that choose to hire me are probably already a bit of a special breed because they're people who are very, very interested in genuinely understanding human psychology. And so they surface their resistance with me, um, exactly like that type of stuff. And they love to give me examples of the times when they beat the crap out of themselves until they hit a goal and that worked. And so, but one of the big things that um, I push on them, which is part of why I think that coaching is so important, is that, you know, this idea of what got you here won't get you there. So, it's really as a, as a leader moves up in an organization or as the organization grows out underneath a leader, the ability to reconceptualize who you are and completely change patterns needs to happen again and again and again. So part of it is about, cool, we're going to try something different, especially because I can always connect this back to they want something to be different than what it is today and they've run out of their own ideas. So usually by this point, they're open to trying some different things. And then the other thing with taking credit, the reason I think that I can usually help leaders break through and realize the benefit of this is it's easy to point out to a type A person or, you know, any of us humans that are overachievers or whatever label you might want to use, perfectionists, it's easy to point out how many times did you think, I'm just going to be so happy when X happens. Oh my gosh. When I get this degree, when I get this goal, when I get that job, when I get this promotion, when we hit this much revenue. And then what happened when you got there? The bar moves immediately. Did you even stop to celebrate for half a second? And so it's helping them realize that that pattern is always going to be present until they change it. That they're always going to be able to look at themselves and say, not good enough. What seemed good enough a year ago no longer seems good enough. So that's the one thing that I point out. And then the second piece that's so important is busting the myth that self-acceptance and self-improvement are opposite sides of a continuum. They're actually, they can coexist and they're most powerful when they coexist. So self-improvement, say that again, self-improvement. Self-improvement and self-acceptance are not opposite ends of a continuum but rather they coexist and they're strongest when they coexist. So sort so of accept, accept, where you, accept where you got to, where you, where you got to, be mm-hmm. happy with it. You can ultimately set a new goal, but you got to be happy with, with what you achieved. Yeah, feel really good about where you are, wherever you are, because you're always going to find ways that you want to be better. 
and then move to improve, not out of not out of a place of fear or beating yourself up or any of those things, but from a place of moving towards something, feeling inspired by something rather than trying to escape the beating that you give yourself for not being good enough. Yeah. My I metaphor is like... I always okay. call it like a higher standard. It's, yeah, Everybody's looking for a higher standard of poverty. Mm. Um, they get to where they want to be and it's plenty, but it's always never, you know, for some reason it never seems like it's enough. Yeah. You know, maybe that's just, you know, in today's world where you know, everybody's reading about Mark Cuban and you know, Zuckerberg and you know, everybody else in the world who's, who've done these amazing things. But, you know, that's, that's kind of like winning lotto too. You got a, a one in a, 300 million chance ever doing that and you're, you yeah. know, yourself, but that's okay. Well, in comparison is the thief of happiness. I think that's true in pretty much any sense of the phrase, you know, in any aspect of life, I think that's true. Um, and that's where I think that somebody choosing to compare themselves today to comparing themselves to where they were yesterday, you know, the metaphorical yesterday or a year ago or whatever is far more useful than comparing themselves to people who have an incredible amount of attention on them because they are so extraordinary in one way or another. Like the vast majority of us are completely average or below average at most things in life. (laughs) Yeah, let that sink in for a second, right? I don't know. There's a great book by Mark Manson um, and he drops the F-bomb in it, but it's The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F. And the whole that that's one of his points is like be okay with being ordinary and he's like just think about it like how many sports are there how many activities are there how many games are there how many crafts or trades or knowledge sets are there's so many things in the world that people do so you are actually probably massively below average at most of those things right right okay and that's okay that's okay. <laughs> you know, like be okay with where you are. And I think that, you know, it's a lot of these types of things, just noticing the little thought patterns that are so pervasive. And most of us don't even realize that they consume our brain all the time. So first drawing our awareness to our own self-talk and then challenging a lot of those not real, they're not true. This idea that I don't, I don't matter if I'm not completely extraordinary or, you know, I won't matter until I, Um, just like Mark Cuban or, oh my gosh, my revenue is at this point, but maybe I'll feel good about myself as a leader once I hit that next revenue mark. Like, no, you won't. You're going to do the same thing. You're going to do the same thing. As soon as you get there, you're going to look around and go, not good enough, not good enough, not good enough. So what I want for leaders to practice is looking around, taking credit for all the things that they've done, it's not, it's not bragging, right? It's like, look, this has been hard. This has been a lot of work. I've learned a lot. I've put a lot of myself into this. I'm doing the best I can. Those are the types of things that I want people to take credit for. Not like, oh, I'm so fabulous. Look at my revenue. No, like that's a huge turnoff to everybody. Yeah. But just practice being really good with exactly where you are and realizing that that's not going to stop you from wanting to grow even more. So changing these thought patterns, taking credit, those are some small ways to start just feeling better about who you are as a human and a leader. So it's easier for you to do the vulnerable thing, like say to a leader in the boardroom, you know what, I I actually don't have all those answers, but I'm really excited to figure those out with you. And I trust you. I actually think that you're incredibly competent. I hired you and I or I promoted you onto this team because of X, Y, Z. 
And so I, I would love your help to figure it out. And I want to support you. What does that look like? How do I support you in bringing us a solution that we can implement? One of the things, my, I've, got a, I've got 16-year-old twins and they're, they're going through the applying for college stage. Oh, wow. And it's funny, you know, everybody, talk, everybody, the big buzzword today is diversity. And why is diversity important? And, you know, we're sitting down and, 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 and they hear inclusion and diversity. And to some people, those are two very threatening wor- words. But you, you, you think about diversity and you go, diversity of thought is what creates innovation and growth. You know, is, is, is the word diversity right now in organizations a negative? From what we've heard, you know, are, are people getting defensive when they hear the word diversity? In some cases, I think so. I think so. I also think that a lot of people are very quick to jump straight to what you said, like diversity of thought, right? So, and this, you know, this definitely starts to deviate away from something that I, I feel like I'm an expert in, although it is something that I used to have a strong passion for. It was what I first studied when I went to graduate school. Um, but when we talk about diversity more in the sense even of um, racial diversity, gender diversity, you know, even if it's like religious background, um, people with disabilities, all those types of things, some of the maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, what diversity kind of meant to a lot of people. I think some people are afraid to even talk about those things anymore. They want to just believe that none of that stuff matters and that we don't have bias anymore, which is completely untrue. Mm-hmm. Um, there's bias all over. And, and then there's the whole diversity of thought idea, which I think is easier for people to accept on the surface, but then even harder to actually know that you're creating that on your team. Who, who is your customer? Who is your client? When, when, when you come to a company, is it, is it an entrepreneur who's saying, I think I've taken this thing about as far as I can take it without some help? Is it some board members trying to give some support to a new business leader or CEO? Is it a, com- is it a, a combination of the both? Yeah, the vast majority of the time, it's a founder CEO who, man, everything was so fun when things got started. And then at a certain point, a lot of the people issues just started to seem like such a drain and such a drag. And they felt utterly inequipped to handle it. That's where a lot of people have chosen to call me um, because they themselves are realizing, hey, our culture used to be great. You know, when we were, and I do tend to work with male dominated teams since I started out in technology. Um, you know, we were just a few guys like working in the garage. It was great. Like that whole, you know, startup thing. And it's like, now we're like this business and it's everything's so disorganized, but we don't want to be structured. We don't want to be corporate. So that was a lot of my clients in the beginning. Um, but it's, it's a mix. You know, I, I have um, one of my clients is co-owned um, by a uh, two brothers and they hired a CEO to come in and take the organization to the next level. And he kind of came in and looked around for a few months, said, cool, Laura, come, come help me out here. There's some culture things I want to, I want to change. I want your help. Um, or I had one client where it was the, um, it was the venture capitalist actually that said, Hey, we've invested in this organization. They're a great organization, but there's some dynamics going on with the leadership team that I fear might hold them back. And I really want to see this company do well in our portfolio can you jump in there and give them a hand? So 
So it's been a mix, but mostly it's the CEO or founder, him or herself, that comes to us to say, hey, I, I really want this people stuff to be easier. What do you got? How do you know? One of the, the scariest things is people who say, I want to change, but they really don't. Mm-hmm. And, what, you, you know, how do you, how do you determine that at the beginning? It's, it's you know, what are, the, what are the tough questions that need to be asked? One of the first things I do in just about every conversation I have with an executive who's interested in working with me is um, I give him or her feedback. And I see how that goes. So I'll say something like, so I'd like to share something about how I'm experiencing you in this conversation. And sometimes even that kind of takes them aback. And then I'll share an observation. And then I'll say, what do you think about that? And I gauge their response to it. And it's not artificial. There's always something real. There's always something that I notice about the way they're talking about themselves, about the way they're talking about their organization, their employees, whatever it is. So it's always something very real. And I just gauge, how does that go over? And so the ones who stop and pause, take it in, maybe ask me a clarifying question and kind of process it with me, maybe get really curious about what, what that's all about. Those are my best clients. The ones who have a ready answer for me as to why they're showing up exactly the way that they are. I'm not going to say no to those people. In fact, I'll just, I'll go meta with the feedback, which is where I start commenting on the scene. And I'll say, so here's what I notice happening now. So I gave you feedback because I'm hearing that you want to change. You want things to be different in your company. And when I give you feedback, my experience of you is that you're looking to defend yourself rather than incorporate it. What do you think about that? So I kind of give them one more chance to drop the defense and see me not as somebody who's threatening, but actually maybe the very person that can help them create the change that they say they want. Do you find that, I mean, I, I find a lot of times you know, people call me up and they're like, hey, we want, we want your help, but we really don't want your help. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? yep. So my question is, all right, look, do you want it or do you not? I'm, I'm busy. Um, yeah. You know, if you want it, we're all in. If you're half in, I'm half in. If you're sort of like not in at all, but you're calling me because somebody told me to, like, please, mm-hmm. don't, waste, please don't waste my time. Um, yeah. Do you find that people are kind of feeling you out that like, hey, you know, I'm not really sure about all this. It's kind of scary. And you know, is it baby steps? Uh, it's usually, gosh, you know what? It probably was. So when I, okay, so I'm five and a half years into having my own company. So in a lot of ways, I still feel like I'm very young and new at the whole entrepreneurial thing. I've been doing this work for, I think, 13, 14 years now. Um, Because as you said, I started with NASA, I worked for Disney. Um, But I had a lot of fear. Oh my gosh. Like now I'm just me. I'm my own organization. I'm this external coach. I'm this external consultant. Can I make money? All of these things. But I had this, I'll, I'll tell a quick story that was really, really useful. And I'm so grateful that happened early in my career as an an entrepreneur. So I was only maybe a year and three or four months in at this point. And I had a job with Disney. So my company was on the side. And I had felt so much fear in the past about, will this client say yes to me? Will they hire me? Can I actually do this? Can I make money out of my own? But I was fine 
I, I had, you know, kind of a cool job working for Disney. I really didn't need the money. And so for the first time, I just sort of chose to not feel afraid. And I had a conversation with a CEO who he was starting to be a little bit difficult in my experience in the sales process. Um, I had put together a plan and proposal included three days of the executive team coming together, which he said he wanted to work on the team cohesion of the executive team. So I said, cool, we'll spend three days together. He goes, we're really busy. I, I, I just don't, I just don't think we can, you know, spend three days working on this. And I said, okay, well, I don't think I can help you. <laughs> he just really like stopped in his tracks and he was like, well, well, I mean, what makes you so confident that you can't help us just because, I mean, we just, we travel a lot, you know, we're really busy. And I said, this is just, it's just what I do. And I know that if you, if you're not willing to prioritize this and bring your executive team together for three days, there's really not going to be anything that I can do. that's going to make a difference. Yep. And two days later, I had what was at that time, my biggest sign contract. It's so, amazing. Everybody's always so busy. Yeah. Everybody's so busy taking care of the urgent. It's the old adage, you know, you're, you're so busy taking care of the urgent at the expense of the important. Yeah. And so I actually got to learn really early on to not chase. I don't chase. Like if it's, if you want to make this happen, then, you know, you're going to, you're going to take the initiative necessary to make it happen. You know, as a coach, one of the things, and I, I admit, I don't always do this, especially since I've been traveling around the world and my calling situation can change from one month to the next. But as an executive coach, one of our practices is your client calls you. So my client calls me to start the coaching call. They take the initiative. They make the choice. They're prioritizing it. It's not, oh, oh good, my coach is calling me so I remember that I have this thing. It's like, no, I am prioritizing my own development and I am making it happen. And if they don't, then they're not really in it. And again, there's nothing or very little that I can say or do that's actually going to help them. Right, right. And, and hey, look, at the end of the day, you know, if we're going to do this, everybody take your cell phones, put them in a bucket. The bucket goes out the room. You're not checking them every 30 seconds. And, you know, it, it's taken seriously. Absolutely. And I tend to be like that everywhere. I even just did a workshop because um, I'm traveling around with a community of people in this um, remote year program. And I did a, a workshop for our, our grow like six month mark. And somebody asked, Hey, like I have a bunch of work to do. Can I come and, you know, multitask and be on my computer? And I said, no. <laughs> and I think that the group was kind of like, whoa. But I was like, no. And I get it. You know, I have days where I have a lot of work to get done. I have deadlines, all that kind of stuff. So it's totally cool, but don't come. It's yeah, super interactive and I want everyone there to be engaged. Yeah, no, I think that the, you know, look, the technology culture and I'm, I am the worst offender <laughs> with my iPhone. You know, it's, 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 I'm almost apoplectic if I, if my iPhone isn't within five feet of me. So and, Craig, have you practiced leaving it behind? You know what? I'm getting better. I, I have actually, I, I, I went to, Went to lunch with my kids yesterday. My wife and my kids, they called me and said, hey, it's a nice day. Let's go, let's go to lunch. And I left the phone in the car thinking that if I take it with me, I'm going to get distracted. It's family time. Mm -hmm. So, But people need to be encouraged to get better about doing that across the board. I'm horrible, personally. I, t I totally agree. And I, I realized earlier this year that you know, a lot of those articles that I've read or the headlines that I've seen are actually probably true for me. I think I am addicted to my phone. And for me, the, the main signal for me was, oh, 
yeah, sometimes I'm just picking up the phone and looking at it and I have no intention. I'm not picking it up to make a call. I'm not picking it up to send a message. I'm not picking it up to gather information so I can carry forward. Sometimes I am. Mm -hmm. It it was in the moments that I was just looking at it just to look at it. But I realized like, whoa, yep, yeah, I don't want to do this. And so I've actually been practicing that myself for the last maybe two months. And I feel so much better when my phone is not in my hand. Yep. Which when I'm walking around cities that I've never been to and foreign countries is definitely a challenge. I like to use GPS and have some confidence of where I'm going. But if I can ever just completely have it away, I do bring it with me. I admit, I I think I would feel a little bit nervous. Again, like I said, in these foreign countries, not have it with me at all. I don't want to get so lost. Um, But to not have it in my hand, I feel calmer. And it's been a really, really cool practice for me. And I was super resistant to even the suggestion that I was addicted to it. Yeah. So if anybody listening is even questioning that for themselves, I would say, practice it. Try something like what Craig just described. Like have a meal, leave it in your car. Just don't even have it in your reach. Remove willpower from it. Yeah. Make one choice to leave it behind completely and then go be present. And now it doesn't matter how many times you reach for your pocket or reach for your purse or whatever it might be. It's not in there. And just do it more because the more you do it, I think the easier it will get and the better you'll feel. It's, it's sort of like anything. You know, it's practice. You know, practice, yes. practice putting your phone down. Practice making a few more phone calls if you're in sales. Practice getting, a, you know, practice getting a few more ideas out of your team if you're a CEO or a team leader. Everything's practice. Yeah. One of our core values here is progress over perfection. So I'm a recovering perfectionist. I was in denial about being a perfectionist for a long time. Actually, it's still the most popular blog that I have on my site is I said, I'm not perfect. So how could I be a perfectionist? And it was about my own discovery of, oh, crap, I am a perfectionist. Like, I get it now. Um, And so realizing how that was getting in my way and instead just focusing on progress, which kind of takes me back to that whole taking credit thing. It's like, what if I'm focused less on destination and more on direction? Do I just feel good about the direction that I'm going? Do I feel good about the progress that I'm making? It's all practice. Life is practice. Leadership is practice. That's a good point. Hey, so tell me, so you've been, you're, you're in the, you've been eight months into traveling the world. You've taken your business, you're, you're, you're doing, you're conducting a lot of business. You're in, you know, Serbia now, you were in Asia a couple months ago. Um, you're going to spend the rest of the year in, you know, traveling around Europe. What are you learning? What, uh, what are the cool things you've learned in just traveling the, the world? Oh, gosh. Okay, several things. Um, the first one is that we all have way more things than we need. So I started to practice minimalism uh, before I left for my remote year, just getting rid of all of the clutter. Um, I definitely underestimated how much it was affecting me, even even small things like making a decision about what to wear and having so many choices in my closet. You know, now I have weight restrictions for my checked bag every month when I travel. So I have way fewer things. And you know what? I am not less happy because of it. Not even a little bit. So that was one of the first things is I got rid of, I think over the last two or three years, I probably got rid of 98, 99% of my belongings when it all comes down to it. Um, The other thing that I've learned is that I still think that we are so much more similar than we are different. So I don't know what I was expecting. Like I had never been to Asia. So that was my first time on that continent anywhere. And I really don't know exactly what I thought it might be like. But the more I lived there, which was for three months in total, 
the more I was like, yeah, you know, they're just people. And I'm not saying there's not cultural differences. There absolutely are. But especially, and I think this is definitely true in organizations too, the deeper we go with how we're really feeling and what we're really thinking, the more we realize how much we're the same. Like we can have different experiences on the surface of the earth, but once you go past the surface of, you know, the, the human front and get into like those thoughts and feelings and what was going through your head, it's like, oh yeah, we're actually all still just human. And so the world genuinely feels like a much, much smaller place. Uh, and then I'm learning a lot about how much I still let fear hold me back. So openness is one of the first things that I teach to all my clients, whether it's coaching or consulting or workshops. I teach this idea of openness, how it's the greatest simplifier in the world. What if we were all just more open? What if we just said more of what we were thinking and feeling and spoke about our own experience? And then I'll notice that so this happened to me in Prague, for example, last month. I walked into a, it's so silly, it's like a fast food burrito place. And I try to minimize dairy, <laughs> you know, and they're kind of going through their routine. They're like, and they speak English, but I'm obviously a foreigner and I do not speak Czech. So, uh, you know, I don't even, I wouldn't even know how to say no cheese, please. Yeah. I could just speak it in English, but I have all the self-talk in my mind where I go, but, oh man, I don't want to be that annoying American that's now trying to be extra particular about how I want my food. And I have so many stories. like they probably don't even care. You know, they actually spoke English from what I could tell completely fluently. Like I don't even think it's that hard and maybe they don't have any negative sentiment towards Americans or towards people who they think might be tourists because they can't differentiate me as a tourist or a traveler or whatever. Right. Right. But I allow fear in that moment to hold me back from saying what I want to say. And it's like small, really, really small things like that that I wouldn't think twice about if I was in the States. But as soon as I'm traveling, I realize like, okay, I have all these other lenses and filters now that are, they're all just the same shade of fear. So from a self-awareness perspective, that's one of the things that I'm noticing a lot. And so for me, there's two big takeaways there. One, just go ahead and say, hey, no cheese, please, and see what happens. Because I think I can cope with it, even if they do, it's not the end of the world. Uh, And two, maybe I would feel better about myself and I wouldn't have so much fear if I made the effort and I made the time to learn more of the local language. So from a self-accountability standpoint, that's something that I can choose to do. And so being more self-accountable in general, I think makes all of us just better humans and certainly better leaders. I think taking a year off or not, not even a, not a year off. Let's yeah, not a year off. Not I'm a working off. a lot. <laughs> but taking a year and saying, I'm going to go do this from... 30 different countries. I'm an entrepreneur who's dedicated to my clients, but I'm going to go do this from 30 countries around the year. Um, that's a pretty big fear. To, you know, look, 90, 99% of the people of the world, including me, would probably be too fearful to do that. So that's, that's a pretty big step. Yeah. Well, yeah, thank you. It's funny, right? Like I can, <laughs> I can do that. And then I'm like, ooh, don't ask them to leave the cheese off my burrito. It's a little bit ridiculous, right? Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, I see your point. And I think for me, fear can be quite subjective. I, I actually, because I've been wanting to do something like this for a good, I think, five years before I finally committed to do it. And I actually sort of had a bit of a growing fear of what if I never do it? 
What if I don't? I've been saying I want to do this. What if I never do it? And that actually started to become scarier to me than doing it. I have, I do, I admit, I have sort of a borderline delusional sense of self-confidence. I blame my parents. I think that I can do anything, but it's always about because I can work hard and because I can learn and because I can find people to help me. Well, I think right. that's, but I think that's what, yeah, I, I read a lot of articles. They talk about their, they talk about people in their nineties. You know, my father-in-law is 91 and he talks about the, the great, he and, uh, he and his best friend used to ride the rails from Chicago out to Wyoming every summer and they'd go herd cattle. They, they, you know, they were literally riding the rails and herding cattle. And you think about, awesome. yeah, we had the courage to do that. And you think about, but you know, a lot of people, they live with regret, the regret that, Hey, look, mm-hmm. the, the right time never came. You know, I never spent the amount of money. I'm, I'm dying with a million bucks in my pocket because I never had the courage to spend it, etc. And And I think that, uh, you know, that fear of what if is something that, you know, really does hold a lot of people back. It does. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I, I teach my clients and I'll, I'll share with you and, and your listeners is there's actually really only one fear that any of us have in life. And it's not a fear of what might happen. It's a fear of, can I cope with it? Because wow. things are going to happen. Yeah, things are going to happen all the time. There are all kinds of things in this world that happen that are outside our control. What we fear is I'm not going to be able to cope with it. And you can apply this to a lot of situations in your life because there are certain things that, you know, Bob next to you might be saying, you know, that freaks him out or he would never have the courage to do it. And you go, wow, what's the worst that could happen? X, that's no big deal. And you might not say the words, I could cope with that. But that's basically what you're saying. But then there are things that for you, part of you fears you cannot cope with it. Yep. But what if you could? And that's, again, like resilience. That is huge. That's another thing that I do to help leaders feel better about themselves, to be willing to be vulnerable and take risks and not let fear hold them back, is to realize all of the things that you've coped with in your life so far. Like we're all coping all the time, even through really, really hard things, even when it sucks sometimes. You're still, you're actually, you're coping. Yeah. And we have different strategies for coping and you can maybe learn healthier coping strategies if you choose to educate yourself in that way. But it's all about, can I cope with what happens? And that's where I almost always come back to, yeah, I can. I can cope with rejection. I can cope with losing a client. I can cope with, you know, the employee at the burrito place snarling or rolling his eyes when I say, please hold the cheese or whatever it might be like. Yeah, I actually can cope with that. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point, though. I mean, you got a lot of people who have stayed in the same job for 30, 40 years. And they never looked for better. They never looked for bigger because they're like, hey, look, what if nobody wants me? Can I handle that? Mm-hmm. And that's probably a pretty, you know, once again, I think that comes back to your, your blog of, you know, uh, I am what I think I am. And if I think I'm not that good, then why step in? Why, why try to step into something better? Yeah. So that's awesome. Hey, I, I know you got a lot of things going on and a lot of, I really enjoyed, I want to come back. I, I want to have you on again. Cause I want to talk about kind of that, the, you know, the fear thing and stepping out of your, your boundaries. Can we, uh, yeah. can we, can we set up another time down the road when you're back from your travels? Absolutely. If I come back, if, <laughs> you'll be back. No, <laughs> where's, where's next? What's where, where are you heading next after, uh, after Belgrade? 
So I'm doing a quick deviation to meet up with my sister. I'm flying to Paris on Friday, and then we're going to the south of France. So I actually will be taking a week off of work, which is very, very important. So for all of the executives out there listening, very important. Yes, you can do it. Yes, you can. And then um, I will be going to Portugal before we head over to South America for three months. Awesome. That's a, no, that sounds like a lot of fun and uh, all the best in your travels. Thanks for coming on today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Craig. Craig.